First John chapter two verses seven through eleven. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment which you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new commandment, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. He who says He is in the light and hates his brother is in the darkness still. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and in it there is no causing for stumbling. But he who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Today's text, verses seven through eleven, now falls into two parts. The first part is verses 7 and 8, and the second is verses 9 to 11. Now, I think verses 9 to 11 are basically a repetition of something we've seen twice already in chapter 1, verses 5 to 7, and in chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. It's the application of a test so that a person can show whether he's in the light or not, whether he knows God, whether he's walking in the light. And the test in this case happens to be love or hate. So I'm not going to focus on those verses. I'm going to get to them at the end and put them in a certain context, but we're going to spend almost all of our time on verses 7 and 8, because here's something new in the book is introduced, and it is tremendously important. And so I want to ask four questions about verses 7 and 8. First, what is this commandment that's referred to here that's said to be old and yet new? Second, in what sense is it old? Third, in what sense is it new? And then finally, fourth, why does John go out of his way to stress its oldness and its newness? And I think if we can answer those four questions, the insight of these texts for our faith and obedience will become clear. So let's take them one at a time and do that. What is the commandment in view? Because it's not quoted here in these verses. We have to guess at it, but John doesn't make it hard for us to guess. I think He's assuming that the people that he had taught so well would know immediately what he means by new commandment. If you just read on down from verses 7 and 8, after he's spoken of new commandment, old commandment, he starts talking about love and hate. So the most natural thing to do would be to assume that he's talking about the love commandment of Jesus in John 13, 34, which Jesus himself called a new commandment, right? Jesus said, a new commandment that I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you love one another. And by this, men will know that you're my disciples. And I think that's right. But there's an even better clue for that. Second uh, John, verse 5, is a good confirmation of that guess, because in Second John, verse 5, we have this same interplay between old commandment, new commandment, but the commandment here is quoted for us. It says in 2 John verse 5, and now I beg you, lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had 
from the beginning that we love one another. So there it is, laid out for us very clearly. And the wording is just like verse 7, namely that we've heard it from the beginning. And so I think the answer can be given with great certainty. The commandment in view here is love one another and probably love one another as I have loved you, to use Jesus' words. Next question. In what sense is this commandment old? Verse 7 stresses its oldness. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, no new commandment, but an old commandment, which you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. So John says it's is old. And then I think he goes on and uses a couple of phrases that explain what he means by old. He says, you've had it from the beginning. And he says, it's the old word that you heard. If you ask beginning of what? Well, the next phrase should probably be used to answer it. The beginning of the word that you heard. In other words, from the very beginning of the time that they heard the gospel preached, this has been part of it. Ever since you heard the gospel preached at the beginning, it contained love each other as I have loved you. And the confirmation of that, a couple of confirmations later in the letter, is chapter 2, verse 24, for example, where John says, If you heard, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son. Now, notice he puts together what you heard from the beginning. So that's why I think in verse 7, when it says you've heard it, it's from the beginning and it was part of the word which you heard that he means the beginning of the word, not the beginning of creation, though the phrase can have that meaning in John, but the beginning of the gospel. So I think he wants this to be very encouraging. He's saying, in effect, look, when I tell you that love is the criterion by which you are to judge your own standing in the light. I don't tell you anything new. I'm not dumping on you new added burdens and duties. This is part of what I preached from the very beginning. It's not a second level faith. It's not counsels of perfection for advanced nuns and monks. It's basics. Chapter 3, verse 11 may be the best confirmation of all in this. It says, this is the message which you heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Isn't that amazing that he sums up his whole message with that? Not just Jesus came into the world or Jesus died for your sins. The message you heard from the beginning was this. Love one another. That's my message. Now, to me, that is a very remarkable rebuke of contemporary gospel messages. Because we live in a day where the gospel, it seems, is so frequently shared with every effort to keep from saying that love might be required of you. We're not like Jesus who told a man how much it would cost to build the tower, how many forces he would need to go against the army. 
We don't tend to tell people what it costs to come to Jesus. But John said, this was my message from the beginning, namely, love one another. Have you heard the term disciple used in a certain way these days? There, there is a movement, several movements, in fact, within evangelical Christianity that takes the word disciple and makes it a second stage Christianity. Heard that? You're all converts. Now, come on, let's be disciples. Let's come to the point where we can be disciples. And there's no foundation for such a distinction in the New Testament. But you know why that is done theologically? Because conditions are laid down for discipleship in the New Testament. And people don't want a gospel that has conditions besides believe Jesus died for you. He who would come after me and be my disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If you keep my words, you are truly my disciple. By this will all men know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. That ain't the gospel, they say. That's stage two Christianity. It isn't stage two. It's stage one. Because it is the message that was heard from the beginning. When we preach the gospel, what we say to people is Christ died for sinners. On the basis of that atoning death, God offers to you forgiveness, hope, and the power to change. And it's a package. You can't have any of it without all of it. So it's a remarkable rebuke that we have here to contemporary gospel preaching that says, leave the talk about repentance and having to love your brothers and deny yourself and keep the commandments for later. Stage two. And the reason that's done is because they want to give assurance to disobedient Christians. You've got to have a way to give assurance to disobedient professing Christians. You can't do it if discipleship is Christianity, so you call it stage two. And John rebukes that here and says, this is nothing new, this commandment. This is what I gave you from the beginning when I require it of you that you demonstrate your newness through obedience to the love commandment. I am saying nothing new. Third question. Well, in what sense is it new? Why call it new? If you're so interested in it being old, why say it's new? Verse 8. Yet I am writing you a new commandment, which is true in him. I think that means Jesus in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Now, this verse is difficult. I could see it in the faces of the first service. So I'm going to try my best to make it clearer this time. And you put on your caps uh, to think with me because there are connections in this verse. There are terms in this verse that are tremendously important. And the most important word for me is the word already to surprise you. The light is already 
shining. Now, what does that mean? When you say something, it's already happening. What do you imply by that? You imply that you expected that sometime way off in the future it would happen. Sometime way off in the future, light was going to shine. And all of a sudden, John says, it's already shining. Now, what's he got in mind? What is this future light that he was anticipating? If we ask John now, John, what's this light? I think John would say, don't you know the Old Testament? Don't you know the great day that was coming, the new age, the kingdom of God? Let me quote for you Isaiah 60, he would say. Verse 19, the sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give light to you by night. For the Lord will be your everlasting light. Your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down or your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of mourning shall be ended. So John knows that there's a great new day coming upon the world. An age of light, hope, love, righteousness, freedom from sin and misery is going to dawn, rise, and the noonday will blot out all sin and misery. It's going to be a great new day. We call it the kingdom of God come upon the earth. And John says, it's already shining. This light is already shining. Now, don't take that out of context and say, sure, Jesus is the light of the world. That's too simple. He doesn't say that here. Let's look at what he says. He puts a because in the front of that phrase, because the darkness is passing away and the light is already shining. So we need to ask, how is it a cause for what comes just before, namely, that the love commandment is true in Jesus and in you. So let me paraphrase the verse and try to bring out by my paraphrase what the connections are in this verse. It goes like this. I am writing a new commandment of love to you, namely, that you love one another. And the reality of this love has come true in Jesus. And is coming true in you, his transformed people. Why is it coming true in you and in him? Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Let me reverse it now and read it again backwards. The true light that we anticipated for the age to come, the light of God's glory, is already shining. And the result of this shining light is that the love commandment is being true, becoming true in Jesus and in you. Now, here's the inference that I draw from those connections. The light is the light of love. Now, it's not very hard, is it, to see that? That if the light already shining is the cause or the ground of the fact that the love command is true in Jesus and in you, then the light must be the light of love. Or at least a essential part of it must be the light of love. If we go back and pick up the one other place where light is talked about in this letter, there are only two places where light is spoken of in 1 John. Chapter 1, verse 5, 
And right here in our text. And there it said, God is light, and in him there is no darkness. And that's exactly what Isaiah said was going to happen. Someday God is going to be your light. You won't need any sun, any moon anymore. He's going to be your light. What is the shining of God's light? It dawns, and where do we see it? We see it in love. In the love commandment being fulfilled in Jesus and in us. Which is why when I preached on 1 John 1, 5, and it said God is light, I stressed hope and love. Remember? If you've got light, you can see where you're going. You don't fall down. You get to where you, you want to go. There's hope in it. Instead of taking it merely as purity or holiness. Because the one other place where light is used is right here, and the context is clearly the context of love. Let me give you one image that might crystallize it a little better. There's the east. When I walked over, it was almost sunrise this morning, and it was too cloudy to use it as a perfect illustration, but sometimes it's perfect. When the sun begins to rise, and it doesn't quite get to the lip of the earth, You can tell that there's a new bright day dawning. Now, that's the kingdom that's coming, the new age. All light will drive darkness out of this earth. If you're in a mountainous region and the sun begins to rise, sometimes one beam of sun, of light, shoots into the darkness before the sun gets over the mountains. And you know who that is? Jesus of Nazareth. Sent ahead of time, that ray of dawn, the light already shining. But Jesus, the light of the world, gathers around him a people. And what does he say to them? You are the light of the world. You are the kingdom people. In you, the light of the kingdom is already shining. And so if you ask John, how's this commandment new, this love commandment? He would say, it's new Because it's the demand to reflect the new light. It's a demand to be mirrors. To gather around Jesus, the fire of the light of the age to come, and reflect his light all over the world in your business and in your play and in your homes. And be light for him. Another way to see it would be to recall how John said, God is light and God is love. 1, 5 and 4, 7. And John said, or Jesus said, I am the light of the world. John 9. And he said, greater love has no man than this. Then they lay down his life for his friend. So he is love. And then Jesus says, you are the light of the world. And he said, love one another as I have loved you. And when men see this, they will know that you are my disciples. So light and love, which are really the same, flow from God through Jesus to his people And out to the world. And the love commandment, love one another as I have loved you, is new in the sense that it is a call to image forth the new age. The new light that's shown in Jesus Christ. The light that John says here is already shining. Final question. Why does John... Stress, newness, and oldness. What, what do you get into this for? 
The oldness, I think he wanted to stress to distinguish himself primarily from the false prophets. You remember them from last week? They were they had left the church, chapter 2, verse 19. They were teaching things new about assurance and about sinlessness and about walking in the light. And they had gone beyond orthodoxy and had left the faith, John said. In chapter, um, no, it doesn't have a chapter. In 2 John, verse 9, there's a, an amazing little phrase about these people. In 2 John, verse 9, you read how it says they went ahead and did not abide in the doctrine of Christ. Now, that little little phrase, went ahead, is a Greek word for progressing, going beyond. In other words, what he's saying is the false prophets are progressive in the worst sense of the word. They progress right out of orthodoxy. They go beyond the old apostolic teaching. And so John wants to say, look, when I lay on you this love commandment, I don't, I'm not saying anything new. It's like Paul in Galatians 1 where he says, if I come to you with any other word than I came before, let me be accursed. There's only one sound teaching, and that's the once-for-all delivered teaching of the apostles. If these false teachers go beyond and deliver new things to itch your ears and want to teach you to have assurance while you live in your sin, don't listen to them. There's only old stuff. I delivered it all at the beginning. Let me just remind you of that. So I think that's the reason why he's so intent on stressing its oldness. But now why... The newness. Why does he go so far as to stress, nevertheless, it is new? And I think the reason here is because he doesn't want us to be legalists. Now, that's not obvious why I just said that. I know. So I'm going to try to explain how verse 8 and the newness of the new command in relationship to the light already shining guards us from turning the love commandment into a means of legalism. Now, let me remind you what legalism is from Galatians and the rest of the New Testament. Legalism is a way of life by which you do things in order to earn or merit or deserve things from God, like eternal life. Anybody who thinks in terms of loving in order to earn God's love, God's light, God's life, is a legalist and won't get any. Now, let's try to see how this verse guards us from interpreting John that way, because it's easy to imagine that somebody would take this book, which is so heavy on the necessity of obedience in order to verify reality, and turn it into legalism. That would be easy to imagine. John says, I am writing you a new commandment, verse 8, which is true in him and in you, it has come true in you because, now notice, it's come true in you because the light is already shining. You cannot fulfill the love commandment in order to have the light. It is the light already shining in your heart. Let me state it in three sentences that are almost just like each other to drive home the point. Love can't 
earn the light of the kingdom. It is the light of the kingdom already shining in your heart. Love can't merit eternal life. It is eternal life already present in your heart. Our love can't deserve God's love. It is God's love being perfected in our heart. It is impossible to take the teaching of John and turn it into legalism. Let me put two verses together for you. This is the sort of thing you ought to be doing as you read through uh, 1 John with me. Take, look these up with me. Chapter 5, verse 11, and chapter 3, verse 14, if you've got a Bible. Chapter 5, verse 11, and chapter 3, verse 14. And if you, what I would love to do if we were just a little seminar here is just lay those two verses beside each other and say, tell me the implications. Because if you can find it for yourself, it sticks so much better than when I tell you. So I'll go slow here and you see if you see what I saw. Verse 11 of chapter 5. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. Okay, so eternal life is a gift and it has been given to us. It's ours. Chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. Now, what inferences do you draw about the relationship between loving others, and having eternal life. Love is the evidence of having passed into eternal life. Eternal life is a gift of God, and therefore in no way can you speak of loving others as earning eternal life. Again and again, this book makes its effort to guard you from becoming a legalist. From saying, oh, because he requires love, I must now love in order to earn my way into God's love, God's light, God's life. You've misread the letter if you talk like that. Because what he says is, I require love. Because love is the expression of eternal life. Love is the expression of the light that is already shining. Love is the love of God in you being perfected. And if you don't love, you are not born again. You don't have his light. You don't have his love. You don't have his life. There's no legalism possible. Only radical, deep, God-initiated transformation is possible. So the reason why John stresses the newness of the new commandment is to help us see that it is a reflection of the new light that is already shining and therefore it cannot be put into the service of legalism. If we don't see this, you know what we'll do with the love commandment? We'll do the same thing with the love commandment that the Jews did with the law. They turned it into legalism. You could turn 1 John into legalism if you wanted to. 
You could use the commands of 1 John as a ladder by which you climb to heaven, just like the Jews took Moses' law and turned it into a ladder and tried to climb to heaven and therefore received Paul's condemnation because they should have approached it as a doctor's prescription by which they are made well instead of a job description by which they earn wages. Don't do that with 1 John. Let's take one closing glance here at verses 9 to 11. We won't go into it in any detail. Just read it together. I think what these verses do is apply the test of love that has been spelled out for us as a new and old commandment in verses 7 and 8. Apply the test of love to a loving person and a hating person and show what it says about them. But now notice, John evidently doesn't see any middle ground between love and hate, does he? You might look at this and say, hey, I want to I be in there in the middle somewhere. And he won't let you. He's just like Jesus in Mark 4, 4. Remember Jesus? He came to the synagogue. He took his stand beside the man with the withered hand. And then he looked at the Pharisees and he said, tell me, on the Sabbath day, is it lawful to do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? And I can picture them saying, uh, how about something in the middle? And Jesus says, if you don't want me to save this man, you're a killer. You belong to the class of killers if you're not for salvation. And John would say the same thing. If you're not for love, you're for hate. If you don't want to love your brother, you belong to the category of the haters. That's why there's no middle ground in this letter between lovers and haters. So let's read these verses as our closing and remember that they cannot be put into the service of legalism. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness still. That is, he's a liar. He's really not in the light. He who loves his brother abides in the light and in it there is no cause for stumbling. But he who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So hate is the evidence of blindness. And love is the evidence that our blindness has been overcome. This is the miracle of new birth. This is the light that is already shining. This is the fountain of love in every believer's heart. Now, we've got weeks and weeks yet to talk about what this love is. And I hope that you will study with me because it can revolutionize a congregation to catch on to what John means by loving one another as Christ loved us.